2: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 383rd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is currently the most powerful figure in the world of animation and, in the words of The New York Times, one of the most important people in Hollywood. For the last 31 years, he has worked at Pixar Animation Studios, where he was just the 10th employee and third animator on the payroll. He quickly became part of the company's brain trust as Toy Story, the first fully computer animated feature film, catapulted it to prominence, soon thereafter becoming the first person not named John Lasseter to direct a Pixar film, 2001's Monsters, Inc., later directing the first Pixar film to receive a Best Picture Oscar nomination, 2009's Up!, winning Best Animated Feature Oscars for both Up! and 2015's Inside Out!, and most recently, writing with Mike Jones and Kemp Powers and directing the first Pixar film to feature a black protagonist, 2020's Soul, for which he received his ninth Oscar nomination, a record setting fourth for Best Animated Feature, and looks poised to win a record setting third time in that category. Oh, and back in 2018, in the middle of working on Soul, he also became Pixar's chief creative officer, following the departure of the only other person who has ever led the company, John Lasseter. I'm talking, of course, about Pete Doctor. Over the course of our conversation, the 52-year-old and I discussed how he first became enamored with animation, how, just three days after graduating from CalArts, he wound up at Pixar, and how he navigated the transition from hand-drawn to computer animation— What the backstory is of Up's incredible opening silent montage, which The Ringer described as one of the most beautiful stretches in Pixar's entire filmography, comparable only to the wordless majesty that opens Wall-E, how he managed to simultaneously juggle the making of Soul and the top job at Pixar, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Pete, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Honored to have you. And first of all, you know, we always begin just with some very basics.
1: Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Uh, yeah, okay. We're going all, all the way back. Um, <laughs> all the way. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was born in Bloomington, Minnesota. Well, actually, Dinah, but I grew up in Bloomington, which is, uh, you know, just south of the Twin Cities. And my folks are both music educators so, I, I definitely had a musical family. A lot of all of us, I have two sisters, we all played music, musical instruments, and we're sort of a little Van Trap family thing for my folks. <laughs> <laughs> we had to get out the violins and play for guests who came over and stuff. So, well, I, I had read that for a while at least,
2: each of you were enrolled in a, in a kind of, I guess you would say, a music specific program or music music specific school where you were taught the Suzuki method and stuff, which just, I know for you, it sounds like music was not something you were personally going to pursue. It wasn't a, a love of yours in the way that it was for your parents, but that there may have still been some, some value in being a part of a program like that. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah. I mean, I started when I was five and with the Suzuki, at least that particular branch method. They said, oh, five's a little old, but we'll, we'll try. So the, the idea is that, like you indoctrinate kids when they're three, you know, before they even really are too <laughs> verbal almost. Uh, and um, it becomes really part of your DNA and you learn to, by ear. So I played for like, I guess it was nine, 10 years violin. Then I switched to bass. I liked performing. I didn't like practicing. So that was where the, you know, I just was destined to only go so far without, without a love of practicing. And did animation in terms of
2: you doing it sort of first enter the picture as a result of being
1: in situations, music related situations where you were just basically bored? Yeah, I kind of, well, so my parents, again, being music educators, we got dragged to a lot of concerts, some of which we played in, a lot of which we just listened. And of course, you know, you're 12 or whatever, and your mom's like, stop it, sit quiet, stop wiggling. (laughs) So I would grab, uh, I would always bring a pen or a pencil and then grab everybody's programs and just draw as a way to pass the time. And I do think... There is something about being bored that's essential <laughs> to <laughs> for kids to to gra- to to get into an in, you know an interest like that. Um, it was a way of of exercising my mind and just even thinking like, okay, what would happen? What jokes can I come up with? What if somebody fell into the tuba or you know the the the. Uh, drums exploded or I don't know, you know, I'd try to come up with stuff just to keep myself entertained. And that was kind of the beginnings of, of, you know, doing comics and uh, working on films and so on like that. So, yeah. And I I would also credit music as being um, an influence on me because it is so temporal. And um, there's something about the timing, the rhythm that I still use both as an animator, and then all while we're editing, you can tell like, oh, we, we need to lose lose a frame or two frames here because the rhythm is off, you know. Yeah. So interesting. It's, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of through lines.
2: All right, so that's doing drawing and doing some form of animation, which I guess you may have also been doing while you were in school, just to to kind of uh, amuse yourself. I I gathered, but I mean, I when was the first time you got feedback that you were actually good?
1: I guess you know like with most people you um, anything you have an interest in, you're one of the few in this little small part of the area the world and so everybody thinks you're good and then you go to a college where it attracts all the good people kids from all over, and suddenly you're like, I'm just average, I'm not really very good. In fact, my draftsmanship is pretty bad. Uh, I remember the first day of school, we had to draw, this is at CalArts, the California Institute mm-hmm. of the Arts, um, our our drawing instructor's like, all right, from your memory, draw a barn. I was like, I've never drawn a barn before, I don't even, what? And and so my, I was like Grandma Moses, where there's like a stick figure cow, and it was <laughs> awful. Um, so I had a lot to learn. <laughs> And I guess, though, the fact that you even wound up
2: there, I know you didn't initially start at CalArch. You went off, I think, to University of Minnesota. And mm-hmm. was, was the idea always, I want to be an animator? Or when did when did that idea first sort of settle that that was actually even something that you could do for, for a living, potentially?
1: Yeah, I guess... All through high school, you know, everybody's always asking you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so on. I never thought about it. I loved doing animation. I was making my own films, which is, you know, most, more than most people who even ended up going to Cal Arts hadn't really done that before. So it was something I was just doing, but I didn't I don't know that I ever conceived of like, wait a minute, you could make a living doing this Um, until I had already graduated. And yeah, I went to the University of Minnesota just because I felt like I kind of want to stick close to home and I don't really know exactly what I want to do yet. Um, So I took philosophy classes and um, a couple of sculpture classes and and a drawing class there, which was quite instructive as well. So um, I think it was only about halfway through that first year of of University of Minnesota that I was like, I wonder, what, oh, you know what it was? Okay. So I, I I got through high school, there was this group that placed uh, students who are interested in very specific things at a company. So a friend of mine who was into artificial intelligence, he ended up at uh, at Honeywell and I got placed at a, a small um, animation firm. So it was a place called Bages Jones and they did they kind of like bank commercials and, you know, um, animated, but pretty low budget. And uh, they let me use all their equipment and bother their animators for tricks and tips. And so while I was there, I was like, how do I, where do I go to school? And they said, well, there's two places. There's this place called Sheridan in Canada. You have to be Canadian to go there. So that's out. <laughs> and then there's CalArts, but they're going to turn you into a Disney zombie. So don't go there. <laughs> uh, I, I visited, and I was like, I kind of want to be a Disney zombie, yeah. uh, th- and I don't think that's their intention at all, anyway. But I think their per- perception, anyway, was oh, they're going to teach you to draw like Disney and and kind of iron out all the um, personal stuff from you, which did not happen, I don't think. But well, Cal, so Cal Arts, though, I think it's interesting because
2: so many generations now of animate, you know, really great animators have come through there. I do. I vaguely remember was that sort of set up during was that, was that almost
1: meant to be a pipeline for disney at the beginning right well, you know what's funny is walt uh from what i've read walt disney wanted to start to get, kind of give back to the to artistic community and so he pooled these two other schools that were kind of going bankrupt and formed cal Arts. He died before they fully formed by the time it opened in 1970, I think there was no animation department, and it was very, very kind of progressive. Um, a lot about uh, abstract, uh, you know, cutting-edge art kind of stuff. Not at all like the conservative commercial art that 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 animation is. Um, and it wasn't until 78 that they started a program um, for animation specifically, and that was, you know, John Lasseter, Brad Bird, uh, Tim Burton, all those guys. I think they were like a bunch of hungry people who were just kind of waiting for something. And when that program opened, they were like, it was like a magnet. They all were right there. So, And what was, the, what
2: was for you the most valuable takeaway of being there? Was there something that you left doing well
1: that you hadn't come in there doing well? Well, um, I feel like because I had been trying to animate for, I don't know, I guess it would have been five or six years before that. I had a little bit of a head start, but it wasn't really till I got there that I started to... And there was, I remember a day, I don't remember what day it was, that a, a, I felt like a switch in my head and I'm like, I understand this. It's not just one drawing after another, there's all this complexity that kind of it, it escapes um, you know, me describing it. Um, but I, I remember kind of feeling a click where I got animation. And um, then it became um, about acting. And not so much just movement. For me, up till then, it was the the fun of look, it's alive. It looks like it's moving. <laughs> and then when you got there, um, the the sh- the thought shifted to oh, I want to communicate specific ideas and feelings. What's going on inside this character's head? In fact, one of the great things that they passed on. Glenn Keane was teaching there. Chris Buck, all these other people who are masters of of uh, the medium and, and directors now. Uh, they would say stuff like, well, don't draw what a character is doing, draw what they're thinking. I'm like, mm. whoa, what does that mean? That's deep, you know? <laughs> so there was, there were a lot of cool things that we learned there. So I
2: know you made several student films there, which I, I assume had to have been hand drawn, right?
1: Yeah. They had, they had a few computers. So this was in light, late late eighties that I was there. Um, but you, it was like my third year film. I started the movie with kind of a camera move, like a a crane. And I thought, oh, a computer would be a great tool for this. So I modeled these very basic shapes, Uh, but you basically had to animate blind. You'd put in like X, Y, Z coordinates into a script, and then you'd go away for like three hours and it would render out, uh, the move in wireframe and you'd be like, oh, that's totally, ah, uh, not at all what I thought it was going to be. And you'd go back. And so it was kind of like reaching your hands into a black box and, and then, uh, you know, seeing what happened. So it was quite different than, than even what I experienced at Pixar.
2: Well, that's the thing that I really want to kind of, uh, zero in on because you graduated in 1990. I believe you're 21 years old at that point. And within three days, from what I've read, you're working at Pixar, just the 10th employee, just the third animator. Today, that would be a dream come true for most aspiring animators. But back then, Pixar wasn't even really an, an entity associated with animation, was it?
1: No, it was known for um, making the Pixar image computers, which I guess were used by the government and medical imaging and all sorts of things like that. I know now that Ed Catmull, uh, who was the president, had a dream of doing a, a feature film someday. But that was not at all in evidence when I started. Um, it was not a place that anyone ever thought of applying to. So as we were graduating, everybody else was like, I'm, I'm going for Warner Brothers. I'm going to Disney. I'm trying to you know get a job at The Simpsons. And um, I got courted by Pixar. And it was nothing I would have ever gone for had they not kind of asked me because nobody worked there, you know, it was John Lasseter and a bunch of technical guys. Um, so, uh, it was really because John knew, um, Joe Ranft. Joe was a, a story teacher of mine and he had suggested to me, and I think my films were in this festival of animation that, uh, toured around and, uh, the Pixar shorts were in that as well, so I was I was familiar, and a very small group of hardcore animation fans would have known Pixar films just from the shorts. But that's that was pretty it was pretty small. I remember uh, when I started at Pixar, we for a Christmas video, we thought, oh, this will be great. We're going to go around, we're going to videotape strangers on the street, people within three blocks of Pixar, and said, "What's Pixar?" And they were like, I, uh, "Is it like a fabric <laughs> company?" Or like nobody knew what Pixar was. Oh my God. So yeah. when
2: you were, you, you know, you say you're courted together by, by Lasseter, who at that point, I guess, well, what was the pitch? What was it going to be? Were they already telling you, Hey, we're, our goal is within five years or whatever to make the first computer
1: animated film. I remember they said, we're, we're working towards doing a Christmas special. Um, and in the meantime, we're doing these commercials um, and of course the short films are the things that I fell in love with from that, from, from them. And I guess in the back of my head, I wasn't really even really listening to what they were telling me. I was, I was thinking, oh, maybe I get to work on some more of those shorts. Those are amazing. That's what I want to do. So between that and, and just the people, you know, I talked with John and, uh, uh, Deirdre and all these other people and everyone was so nice and it was, out of LA up in the Bay area. And I remember we went, John took me to the studio. I looked around, met a a bunch of people, saw how they worked. And he's like, let's just go for a drive. So then he takes me through the Redwoods. And I always, I just felt pretty like beyond the work, the surrounding, the people and the place seemed like a good thing. Was Steve Jobs already involved at that point or when did he become involved? He owned the company, but uh, and I remember asking, like, do you guys ever see Steve? And they're like, no, he never shows up. Um, he's too. Bu- I think he's busy. He's busy doing Next or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it, the first time I met him, well, or saw him, I don't remember. I don't think I actually met him this time. But he came to lay off half the company. Because um, oh, we were doing, there was about 120 people when I started. And half of them were doing hardware. And then there was a bunch of people doing software. But it was, it was like hardware is not a good way to make money. Uh, at least then I don't I don't know now. Um, <laughs> so he he decided you know what we're going to stop with the Pixar image computers and he laid off everybody and then he came and gave the, this speech that everybody uh, talked about his reality distortion filter that he can he could turn this awful thing into something great and so uh, we all <laughs> sat and listened to him and that was that was I, I did get to know Steve pretty well over the years but he was not heavily involved until towards the back end of Toy Story. Like once it was starting to roll out and he could see what it was going to be and the sort of effects that it would have, he was really involved in the publicity and the marketing and the positioning of how that film would be communicated to people.
2: I, of course, have to ask you about Toy Story, but first I want to note that you won a Student Academy Award for... Next door, one of the films I think you'd made at CalArts. How did that happen once you were already at Pixar?
1: Well, what happened was, um, okay, so I made the film and at school, all we really had time to do was to do the pencil test. So it was all black and white. It's kind of cryptic for people who aren't used to animation. So uh, over the summer, I was going to color it. So I boxed it. I did all the cleanup work and I sent it to this uh, ink and paint house in canna in vancouver and um somewhere along the way oh and the the people that i was working with said if you put too high of an insurance value on the box it'll just get held up in customs so put like 12 dollars. like okay (laughs) so i send it off it never shows up somewhere in the mail like a third of the film got lost and oh. of course, I didn't have copies, so yeah. um, I, I kind of gave up on it. And then my mom sort of guilted me into like, no, no, you got to finish. So um, a friend of mine, Flip Phillips at Pixar, took the only thing I had was a 16 millimeter print of the pencil test. So he helped me scan it using some weird technical wizardry, uh, convert each image, each frame of film and print it out. On a eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, which I then re-registered by hand and retraced, you know, redid like a third of the film. Because I I couldn't just start again. I had the soundtrack that I had had to match to. So that took more work than I thought. (laughs) And that's why it was like a year uh, later after I graduated that finally I finished all that stuff. But that's
2: quite a feather in your cap to be starting at a new place as a new Student Academy Award
1: winner. That must have given you some uh, some bragging rights. (laughs) Well, I guess yeah. I mean, John, of course, Lasseter had maybe two. I think he had two Student Academy Awards, so he was no stranger to it either. (laughs) Yeah. So all right. So Toy Story, of
2: course, changed the whole business of animation and movies when it came out in 1995, as we were saying, the first computer animated feature length film. And I guess I just wonder if you can talk about its evolution and your contributions to it. I've read these great stories where, you know, apparently you're sitting at a desk with a mirror kind of mimicking, uh, making gestures that would then be animated, I guess, as, as Buzz Lightyear. And just, just, I wonder, you know, how in your memory, what, what stands out the most in your memory about its uh,
1: coming together? Well, it was totally opposite and backwards from, I think, what most people imagine or, or even their experiences as uh, getting a film going. I think most people think, oh, you have this film, you have a script, you go and you knock on the doors of studios and you say, how about this? And instead, what happened here was, so John Lasseter had worked at Disney back in the day, in the 80s, and because of varying things, they had let him go and since then, they were like, that was a mistake. We need to get John back, <laughs> and they'd been trying to hire him, and he, he basically um, pointed to The Nightmare Before Christmas, which it had just been done outside of the studio through Tim Burton, and said, what if we do a kind of thing like that where we make the film and you guys distribute it? And so, of course, Steve was involved and and a bunch of other folks, but finally they negotiated something, and they're like, great, uh, we thought we had to do or we should do a short, like a Christmas special as a stepping stone because we'd done, you know, these short little commercials. We'd done short films, which are like maximum six minutes. That's a huge jump to 90 minutes. So we thought we'll do 30 minutes. And and Disney said, no, no, if you can do these commercials, you can do these shorts, you can do a feature. Just go right wow. to the feature. And we're like, OK, great. So then they're <laughs> like, what do you want to do? And we said, we hadn't hadn't thought about that <laughs> so it's completely backwards we had no idea yeah. what we were going to do i remember joe Rampt saying well you know the toy story or sorry tin toy which is the third of the short films fourth of, of the Pixar films. They'd done that. They'd finished that before I got there. There's these great f- characters. And what if we try to use some of those characters it's like Tinny, this little wind up tin toy. And so we started playing around with that. And that was the genesis of what became the film. None of us, except for Joe, had ever worked on a feature film before. So we're all flying blind. We don't know what we're doing. And we're like, uh, well, um, we had this idea for a short uh, TV special we had developed it was going to be a 30 minute thing. We said, why don't we just make that act one and then we'll keep going. So uh, that took place in a toy store and it was uh, these three tin toys. There was Tinny and then two others um, who got boxed up and opened later. And it was sort of a Rip Van Winkle story. They, they were kind of from the 50s and then they were coming out. Um, into the modern day world, which then was the early '90s, and, and then I think we added on like somebody buys him, but then he gets lost at a gas station. He meets this ventriloquist doll, and it's the two of them journeying across America to find their kid again. Um, and that developed for a while, and then the the ventriloquist doll became Woody, the pull string doll, and Tinny became Buzz because the story called for him to be a young, um, better version of Woody to make Woody jealous. And we're like, well, a tin toy, that would be backwards. It's almost older than Woody. So let's make like a G.I. Joe action figure. Um, And so we created this whole kind of backstory that Buzz came from this movie or from a TV show. And this, uh, it was super cheesy because a lot of stuff we grew up with was like space ghost and, you know, those kind of things. So we were (laughs) um inspired by that um, kind of genre feel. So the, the story continued to mutate. And, you know, through the whole thing, I was, I kept waiting for John to walk in one day and say, all right, guys, here's the story. We open on this and we, he was, I'm, in my mind, he was going to pitch the whole story. So I was like, okay, we we keep drawing all this stuff, but is, this isn't the way movies are made. <laughs> this is now it works. I thought Great. that the way it was is Walt Disney or Miyazaki or whoever, just, dreams up this stuff, it appears fully formed, and then they explain <laughs> it to everybody. So that was my first education that, no, movies are kind of more discovered than they are made. You know, you, you, uh, the whole process that's continued to this day follows that, like, blindly stumbling along, like, what are we doing? What's the As you make it, you kind of come to the heart of it. And I think the thing we stumbled on and didn't really even know we were looking for was this center of a jealousy. And we all can relate to this idea that, like, I used to be the kid who was into animation in Bloomington, Minnesota. But now when I go to college, I'm no longer the best one, right? So now I'm jealous of all these other guys. I think it's a very relatable thing. And what do I do with that, right? So Woody became this character who was sympathetic but acted not always nice, you know. And through that whole process, we were having these regular check-ins with Disney. At the time, it was Tom Schumacher, Peter Schneider. And um, Jeffrey Kassenberg was the bigwig. He was um, in charge of like, I think all film production, but he had taken a real shine to animation. And so every maybe month or two, we'd go down there and we'd pitch stuff or uh, leading up to these big screenings, we would cut all of our, well, let me back up for a second. They, of course you start with a script, but all of us are very visual. And so we were really... Uh, hanging more on story reels, which are like, you know, comic book versions of the movie cut together with our own music and dialogue and sound effects. And when it's done, you can kind of sit back and watch a version of the movie. Um, we were the first production to cut on a nonlinear system. Everything up to that point at Disney was all done on film and you'd splice, you know, like in from 19... 19- 12 on or whatever you know we said well we're a computer company let's use the avid this new thing the fancy avid and they were like no 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 jeffrey refuses to watch stuff unless it's on film so you have to do it on film and we said we're gonna push it we're gonna try to do this anyway um so that was new and it of course worked fine um he was he was Totally able to judge the movie, regardless whether it's on video or film. Um, right. So that was just weird. Somebody's idea, I guess, of control. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We would screen these uh, the the versions of the film, and they sucked. They sucked. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, we were trying to be too precious at the beginning, and so Jeffrey would say, "No, no, no. Look, you guys, it's got to have edge." It's got to it's gotta be edgy. The characters should, sh- should say stuff like, hey, 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 hey. And we're <laughs> like, I don't know what edge means. Yeah. <laughs> What's he talking about with the haze? Um, so, of course, what he was going for is a little more contemporary, like the way people talk to each other. Yeah. Um, but w- the way we interpret it was, or maybe took his his suggestions too literally, they became complete jerks to each other. Um, <laughs> to the point where, as you watch the film, you're like, I hate Woody. He's awful. (laughs) He's despicable. I don't care what happens in act two because I can't get past act one. (laughs) So um, that was uh, our second lesson. And we kind of got ourselves cornered into a uh, place where they were like, the film's not working. We're spending too much money. We're shutting the whole thing down. We're bringing you guys to L.A. We had just hired all these animators and technical folks. And at that time, you couldn't just go hire somebody who knew the computer. You had to bring in somebody. Our best bet was uh, stop motion animators who had worked with puppets, and then teach them how to use the computer. So we had invested all this time, we had trained all these people, and now Disney's going to shut us down. And um, I don't know exactly who it was. May have been. I, I feel like it was Ralph Guggenheim who's the producer, along with John, who said, "Give us." give us three months, give us some, I don't remember if it's two months, something like that. One last chance before you shut us down. And they're like, all right. So we said, look, if we're going to go down, let's go down doing something that we believe in. And so we all, there were, I think by now, maybe five or six of us doing story. And we sat in one room and we wrote And we boarded stuff and we would just sit in almost like an assembly line drawing. And I'd be like, I'm drawing the first row. And Joe's like, I'm drawing the second and third. And so it was really this communal, a bunch of people working together. And um, when we cut it all together, it didn't suck. It wasn't brilliant, (laughs) but it was enough for for Disney to go like, all right, keep going. So um, I think that was kind of our hurdle where we almost died, um, but then kept going. (laughs) Amazing. Well,
2: so I guess, you know, one of the questions I have, you mentioned how obviously computer animation is its own special skill. You had come up doing, as we said, hand-drawn where I guess you're literally, you know, drawing on cells and things that don't, doesn't really happen anymore. Yeah. So how did you yourself adapt to this new, it's, it's a totally different, it would seem to me a totally different skill set to be a, a, good computer animator versus a good hand-drawing animator. So
1: um, there's no guarantee that someone who can do one can do the other, is there? No, you're right. I mean, the thing that they have in common, of course, under the hood, you're after the same thing. You're after an emotional performance that conveys what's going on inside the character's head, as we talked about before. How you do that, of course, is totally different. So for people who are very intuitive and like used to feeling things out with a pencil it's frustrating as hell to work on a computer because it's kind of like the way I equate it, it's like you're yelling across the room and describing to someone else. Move your elbow up. No, a little bit more. little no not that far. <laughs> a little down. Okay, good. Now move your wrist. So it's kind of more like that, as opposed yeah, to like yeah. when you're when you're drawing, you're just like, ah, oh, right? you're feeling it out. So um I was intrigued by it because I was the kind of kid who liked to take apart tape recorders and things and figure out how they work. So it wasn't easy, but it was intriguing. Um, and it really, I had to rearrange in my brain the way I thought about an approach to animation. But the benefit was that you could try stuff Thanks to that magic undo button. You know, when yes. you're drawing, <laughs> that pen goes down and there's the line and that's, that's it. And you have another piece of paper, you can start it again. But you're investing all this time drawing a scene. Uh, and when it's done, if it's wrong, you start again. But with uh, computers, you were like, I wonder if that's too slow. Let me speed it up by 5%. And you try it. No, I liked it before. Undo. So it was a really great learning tool, um, which can also get into being a crutch. You know, you can you can try too much just like, well, let's see what happens if I wiggle this around. You know, like, you still have to have intention. You still have to know what you're doing. Um, otherwise, uh, it can be a big time sink.
2: <laughs> and is the in terms of the time it takes to to get a film made, is it actually faster? I know that it's still a very painstakingly... Uh, arduous process, right? Is it faster than anim- and hand drawn though?
1: Yeah, I think at the beginning that was one of Steve's Steve Jobs' uh, sales pitches to investors like it's going to be faster and cheaper and of course it's more expensive and slower. But um, <laughs> well, not necessarily. I, either one can be fast or slow or expensive or cheap depending on how you use it. It's just another tool. So there've been plenty of films that have been made for less than expensive hand-drawn films. It's really the level of detail, the amount of time you give yourself to, to spend. Back at the on Toy Story, it was a small crew. When I say small, like we had, let's say, I think we had 27 animators. We had a crew of maybe eight story artists and a, maybe three layout artists. So the entire crew was around 120. Nowadays, most of our films are more like 300 people. You know, our animation staff on a couple of these films has been like 80 or 90 people. So it's um, the difference, of course, you can see on the screen, the level of quality. If you go back and look at Toy Story, it's like, you know, it's not great animation. It communicates and you forget yeah, about yeah. it because um, yeah. we got the story working well enough that you 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 uh, are interested in the characters and what happens and so on. Um, but the level of, of craft has gone way up. Interesting. So... All right. So there's this, the moment that I guess
2: made Pixar in a way was when that film came out and was such a phenomenon. Can you take me back to what it was like for you and inside the company as you realized that this thing that almost didn't happen at all was now
1: a phenomenon? From my perspective, and this is me alone, um, I had just come out of school. I'm working at this place with my friends for fun. And I would literally come back, you know, I just gotten married, and I warned my wife, like, "This is gonna be, you're you're getting adopted into this into this uh, process." So we would, I would finish work at about six thirty or seven, go home, have dinner. My wife and I would go back to Pixar, and I would animate until about one in the morning, and she'd play video games and fall asleep, and then I'd wake <laughs> her up and go home. And so this was like, I I loved it. I was in it, and so it felt kind of like something we were just doing because we loved it, like people doing this movie in their garage, you know. So it really shocked me to be driving down the road and see a billboard for Toy Story. <laughs> like, what? That did not compute. And then when the film came out and people, friends back in Minnesota said, oh, I saw the movie. I was like, well, how did you see it? <laughs> you know, it, it really did not compute for me that this was going to be rolled out across the country and the world. So, um, the whole thing was stunning. And then the fact that when it was reviewed, it wasn't like, look at the technology and we're talking about splines and avars and all that. It was about the story. It was about the characters and the emotions of the film. That was really cool because that's the way we thought of it. But to see that the rest of the world embraced it as a story, regardless of the medium. Um, was really gratifying and um, pretty mind-blowing. And there
2: was a, if I recall, this is before the creation of a animated feature Oscar, so they gave you guys a special Oscar, right?
1: Yeah, John got a special Oscar for, I guess, because it was the first computer-generated feature film. Um, yeah, I think that the animation category started in 2001, so this was mm-hmm. 1995 um, mm-hmm. when Toy Story came out.
2: I guess, you know, one of the things you've said was a residual benefit of that film's success was that now you guys were getting to meet the real legends of animation, right? The people who had been at Disney in the golden age. Can you talk about, you know, how much that meant to you? Were these people that you had grown up really knowing about and
1: studying and all of that? Yeah, I remember um, because of Toy Story uh, and I was the supervising animator on the show. So, you know, I got to be part of the story crew, come up with the characters. I remember sitting, you know, there was, it was such a small group. It was, John said like, uh, well, we need a catchphrase for Buzz. And he'd be like something like uh, to infinity. And then I would say, and beyond. So we, like we, (laughs) we created this thing. And so when it came out into the world, it felt very personal. Um, Anyway, that's, I I don't know how how I got going on that, but, um, oh, well, as a supervising animator, I kind of represented all the work, in the animation, uh, craft end of it. And we were nominated for a cartoonist award. So it was, a the, um, the nice, the national cartoonist society, NCS. So we, and, uh, I went to New York and, uh, got to meet Charles Schultz and, you know, Mort Walker and all these living legends of cartoon of newspaper cartoons. Yeah. And they had just this little side thing of, uh, an animation award. And, uh, a guy who is a publicist at Disney said, you're going to be at this table. I already know you don't win because you're up against Joe Grant. So Joe Grant was a legend. He, he was, uh, second to Walt Disney back in the forties. He ran the development department. He wrote Dumbo. He sh- selected the songs for Fantasia. So as a result of that, I'm just like, who cares about the award? I just want to talk to <laughs> Joe the whole night and ask him questions. And then, you know, thanks again to this, uh, publicist uh, his name is howard green i got to meet frank thomas and ollie johnson these guys that i literally like studied their book like the bible you know the illusion of life uh, trying to absorb everything that i could from this book and getting to meet these people was just mind-blowing i mean most people like freak out when they meet you know i don't know famous uh tom hanks or whatever i i yeah. was freaking out to meet these <laughs> animators And what were
2: these guys saying about what you guys were doing? I mean, the idea of computer animation, they couldn't have even dreamed of when they were uh, doing, you know, when they were in their heyday. So what were their thoughts on what you guys were doing?
1: They were kind of mystified by how it worked because it, you know, again, for them, it's you draw and then you paint it. Um, and this was a completely different paradigm. And so we would, you know, they a couple of them, Frank and Ollie came to Pixar, uh, Chuck Jones came up. And I remember sitting with him and demoing the software and him kind of shaking his head. The thing that, that was really gratifying was um, they said, you guys get it. A lot of times new technology, things just move around and people think, great, it's animated. It's animated. It's moving. And their whole thing was, no, no, what's the intention? Why is it moving? You know, there needs to be a reason because every movement can make, uh, conveys a meaning. So we were thinking that way, thanks of course to their training. And, uh, and they saw that and that felt really good. That was pretty cool. So I, I believe that after Toy Story, how, some of the
2: creative team goes off and starts focusing on A Bug's Life. Some of them go off, start focusing on Toy Story 2. And in your case, you are delegated to be the first director of a Pixar film not named John Lasseter with yeah. Monsters, Inc. And I, I guess I wonder this, it came out six years after Toy Story. That was actually one of the, that first year of the animated feature Oscar category, one of the nominees. How, how was that uh, adapting to being the, the, the guy directing everything suddenly?
1: I don't remember ever saying, Hey, I wanna direct. I said, um, I I I'll I'll develop something because I think we realized look if and Steve was pretty clear about like, if we're gonna survive as a studio, we need to put out more than one film every four years. You know, we need to have <laughs> at least a film a year. So that was our big goal and we're like, all right, well the only way we can do that is if we have multiple teams, and so that's why we kind of split things up. And I volunteered to develop some stuff. I guess in the back of my head I figured that at some point John would come in and, and, and direct it. But he ended up getting kind of sucked onto Toy Story 2 and, and uh, after Bug's Life. So he was just on this, you know, from one film to another, going, going, going. And, um, you know, it's, it, it is funny. I don't ever remember somebody coming and saying, all right, Pete, you're directing. <laughs> I, I was kind of leading the, the, the team. Um, so it, it kind of grew into that. Speaking of Joe Grant, who you mentioned a moment ago, that movie was not originally going to be
2: called Monsters, Inc., was it?
1: We didn't know. We didn't have an idea for a title yet. You know, it's funny. Toy Story was the working title, and we always rolled our eyes at it, and we're like, Toy Story is the dumbest name. Well, we'll we'll figure (laughs) out a better name. And we went for weeks coming up with huge lists, polling everybody we could talk to and in the end we call it Toy Story. So, uh, with, (laughs) with Monsters, um, I think we had a bunch of different working titles, but Joe Grant came up with the, he's he's like, I have an idea. What about Monsters Inc? And I think he was thinking of Murder Incorporated, which was uh, like the syndicate name back in Chicago or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So, um, it was sort of a play on that. And we all loved it. And then, of course, somebody in legal said, no, you can't do it for some reason. And it <laughs> ended up being a whole thing. We had to come up with long lists anyway. And at the end, we just said, you know what? We're calling it Monsters, Inc. And, right. And sue was. us. So, yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and the big advance
2: on that one was was fur, right? That was something that just previously had been impossible, right? To do well.
1: Yeah. Computers are really good at hard, rigid surfaces. Plastic was a natural, which is part of the reason we went, we gravitated towards toys as a subject because computers could do that reasonably well. And you look at the humans are staggeringly bad in that movie, but you know there were all these technical limitations and we were still figuring stuff out. So on monsters, I thought, well, one of the defining things when I think about monsters is furry, like they're animalistic, you know? And so we need to be able to do this. And so they hired a small team, they they bought a company that had done some preliminary development. It was like two or three people, and they kind of embedded in our group and started experimenting. So we have all these early tests of seeing fur for the first time. There were all these restrictions, you know. By the time we finally uh, developed Sully, there were I don't. 15 million hairs or something. And they said, if he's on screen, you can't have any other characters with fur or the computers will blow up. Like we can't <laughs> not literally that we can't render yeah, 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 that amount yeah. of stuff. So it was a real tax. Um, if you look at the film there, there's one or two shots where there's another character with fur, but most of them we had to design specifically to be more like Lee or some other, you know, leather kind of textures. Cause fur was really hard.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Now, what does it mean that you you were an original member of the quote unquote brain trust at Pixar? Does that just does that mean you're a part of every film, whether or not you're technically a writer and director on it? You're you're vetting the content at the beginning, or what? What is a what does it mean by
1: the brain trust? Well, the Brain Trust is a semi-pompous name that Andrew Stanton came up with <laughs> <laughs> that uh, really refers more to a meeting than a group. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when we were all working on Toy Story, we were just the group, right? But then as we started to filter off and do Nemo and Monsters, we would have screenings and then we would we would screen it for everybody else. And then we kind of pull everybody into this room and we'd have a Brain Trust's uh, Discussion, And the cool thing with that was, of course, we'd all grown up together creatively, so I, we totally trusted each other. I knew that Andrew was dealing with some of the same issues that I'm dealing with on his film or John. And so there was this real sense of when someone suggests something this is an idea i can actually use it's not just a pie in the sky or a, a an executive who doesn't understand filmmaking right it was right. a fellow filmmaker um, and then the other part of it that sort of evolved was none of them are mandatory none of the notes or suggestions even if it's john who's the boss you know we don't have to do what he says we are able to take the spirit of it and say okay how would i want to solve this you know usually when people suggest something they're they're um trying to fix a problem and so what our job as filmmakers is like why are why is everyone talking about this particular character changing this character what's the problem we have to diagnose what that issue is so that we can then come back and go well now that I hear what the problem is, I would rather do this because that feels more like me or for this other reason, you know. Um, so, it, you know, it's a a very helpful meeting because one of the things that's really hard to keep when you're working on a film for four or five years is objectivity. <laughs> so you get so close to it that your nose is up against the bark and you're like, is this a tree? I don't know. I, I'm so close. I can't tell. And showing it to other people that you respect, I think, um, really helps you see it for what it is, at least a little bit more.
2: And would it come out of the brain trust meetings, let's say, that, you know, who's going to then be doing which projects? Like how, for instance, you, I believe, have an original story credit on WALL-E, but that's not one of the... Four films I believe that you've directed there, and it's not one that you know there's a difference between the story and the screenplay credit like how does how do how does how, previous to you prior to you becoming the chief creative officer there who's making decisions
1: about who's doing which projects and what level of involvement generally it was John I think he he relied heavily on a lot of other people to have other opinions in the mix uh, Andrew Stanton for sure and me and eventually Brad Bird and Joe. Um, but largely what the way we evolved it was that we had kind of tap a director, they would go off, develop some idea or ideas and pitch them and then grow the ideas from there. So um, it was Less like, hey, we love this idea. Let's, uh, you, you're going to direct it. it. was more the other way around. We we're like, we like what you come up with. You seem like a talented person. Come develop some ideas and let's see which one of those grow. Um, in the case of, of WALL-E, it was actually a film that I was developing and liked a lot, but couldn't get it to go. So I pitched, I think, twice over the years. Once um, before Monsters, Inc., that was one of the ideas. We were calling it Trash Planet. And, um, we had pretty much act one similar to what was in the film by the end of the development. But I, like I say, I couldn't get it to go, but Andrew saw something in it and he, he took me and said, you know, are you okay if I run with this? Cause I really, I think this could be something like, yeah, if you can get, if you can solve the problems that of act two that I couldn't get going, go for it. So he, he took it up and that's how I ended up with the story credit. Cause I had kind of the original idea that that then he did all the work and solved the tough problems.
2: (laughs) Well, there's something else that, that is in common between Wally, which was out in 2008 and up, which is, is one of the films that you have a director, of course, credit on and co-wrote with, um, with Bob Peterson and Tom McCarthy. And that is, they both have these just unbelievable opening sequences. And I want to ask you, I mean, you've said that the opening sequence, I think it's about 10 minutes in up is one of the things that you're proudest of being a part of. I don't, I, that may be a few years old, but I hope it hasn't changed because it's still one of the, just the great moments of Pixar films. Can you take us into just, you know, since that one was totally your baby, it seems like from start to finish up just the overall idea, but specifically also the opening, how that, I think it was a, a resolution to a problem of too much exposition, right?
1: Yeah, well, backing up even more, the sort of spark of up for me was having worked on Monsters Inc. I'm I'm, I'm kind of an introverted guy, um, and no one really warned me that the entire job of a director is to go around and talk to people all day, <laughs> and so you're just on. You're on. You have to have energy, enthusiasm. You have to be communicative and clear. Otherwise, people waste time, and uh, if you're not. Clear with what you want, you end up with all this wasted effort. People get frustrated. And so you just, it's exhausting. And by the end of the day, I would often crawl into my desk and just kind of curl up into a ball. And I had a lot of daydreams uh, during the film of being marooned on a tropical island (laughs) or flying off into the sky somewhere. And so, really, the idea of up stemmed from this idea of a house with balloons pulling it into the sky. And something just felt like, ah, oh, escape. I wanna get away. That felt great. And then we had to go backwards and say, well, okay, who's in the house? Why are they flying it? Cause they could, you know, they could take a train or something if it's right. uh, about the destination, <laughs> what's this all about? So um, Bob and I created this story about uh, a husband and wife and the promise of adventure that he, life got in the way. And that, that was um, something that even in the first pitch, Bob got people to cry. So it was there. But then as we developed it, we were like, it was, it was a series of scenes. So we had dialogue and we had, there were little scenes and it, it went on for a long time. So as Ronnie Del Carmen started to board it, he said, you know what, guys, I think this would work better without dialogue. And we said... No, I don't think so. uh, uh, Let's stick to the dialogue. Of course, we were wrong, and he was able to prove that. um, And uh, in fact, in the final film, we even took the sound effects out. So it's just music. It's almost like a a silent film um, for that little section. The thing that a lot of times people forget is that it's built over the top of um, a little section at the beginning with them as kids, which I think is also pretty crucial that you start this relationship uh, with the dialogue I, you start to know who these these people are, and then you move forward you know through that four and a half minute little montage of of uh, that we call married life. So it was an interesting learning experience because in a in a sense, it harkens back to the short films that we all did as starting out. you know they were all silent, um, Of course they have sound effects, but I mean no dialogue and uh, and and very visual, so that that was kind of native to us. Totally. I mean, now that you say that, it, it really, as a standalone
2: short film, probably would have been considered wonderful just as, as that. But thank, I'm glad you, <laughs> I'm glad you guys did more than that. And I, I just want to note also the in terms of the influence of these early great animators. Again, I think you said that Joe Grant was sort of a, somewhat of an inspiration for this widower, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. We were as we were making the film, and I'd been to Joe's house a couple times just to talk and. And uh, and look at artwork and books. Um, he 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 had lived in the same house. I think he had built it in like the 50s. He had it built, and so you could see the age and the weathering and th- things like the light switches were just from the simple act of turning it on and off every day. They were worn smooth, and there were layers and patinas to things. And um, so uh, I was able to bring uh, a large part of the art crew down to look at that house, as well as um, Mark Davis, one of the nine old men, Disney great designers, you know, designed Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion and all this. Uh, he and his wife, Alice, had a similar house that was well lived in, stuff everywhere, the, the effects of, of, of 40 years, you know, a life together. So I think those two really had a big influence on us in, in shaping the film.
2: That's great, and I I think that this might be a good example also that we can give listeners of, you know, this is not you guys take the preparation for these things very seriously, right? You will sometimes go before you've drawn anything to a place like, all right, so you want this house to to float to essentially South America somewhere or somewhere remote. You guys go there to see how it's how it yeah. actually
1: looks to to draw that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that was probably the most extreme up to that point, but it was, we felt it was essential because all the research we could find, of course, you know, there was less, there was a small internet, but it wasn't quite as extensive. It was so bizarre. Like you'd look at these plants and, and this space and you're like, I don't know, do I really believe this? It looks like something like a land lost in time. We had, um, seen this documentary Um, We were looking... Okay, backing up. We were looking for somewhere for Carl to go that would land his house that would kind of mirror him as a character, somewhere very remote. I think my initial thought was a tropical island because that was my Mm -hmm. thing of being marooned. But that is pretty (laughs) limited in terms of a travel picture, like getting off of there, what do you do? So we found this... um, I think it was Ralph Agleston who is one of our... um, production designers. He said, yeah, look, take a look at this, this video that I, i it was like a VHS copy of a show um, about tapuies. And I'm like, what? I've never heard of that. These tabletop mountains down in South America that are so far removed that of course it's what inspired Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's um, Lost World. The idea that dinosaurs could still live up there didn't seem that far-fetched, you know, but <laughs> it was so remote and different and all the plant life just was so unlike anything we had seen before. We're like, well, we could probably make it up, but it'll feel more authentic if we can go smell, feel, taste all that and experience it. And actually Ricky Nirva, who is the production designer on the film, he had worked a little bit with Maurice Noble, who's another one of the great designers. He worked on a bunch of stuff at Disney before partnering with Chuck Jones for all of his great great films in the late forties, early fifties. And he said to his students, like, you don't you can't caricature unless you know the real. You have to know what you're caricaturing and and really experience it. So we took that literally, we didn't tell our security Folks that we were going, we snuck out and we flew down there. They were very <laughs> upset because it was not only the jungles but it was Venezuela, so it was not <laughs> like the most stable uh, country politically, not really well aligned with uh, with the u s That was probably the scariest part of the trip was Caracas, the city uh, once we got out into the jungles, it was pretty cool. This could almost be
2: its own Pixar movie yeah, <laughs> If I know. it was a, <laughs> like a bunch yeah. of animators get deal with Hugo Chavez. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, bottom line, this obviously turned out uh, a beautiful film, became the first Pixar film and only the second animated film ever to be nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. You win an Oscar for uh, that in that category for, I guess, uh, first one period for you, aside from the Student Academy Award. So that must have been a, a pretty exciting thing. Um, yeah, I guess... Tell, yeah, take me into, is that a, you know, some people like to poo-poo the significance of things like the Oscars, but I, I would have to think it's pretty special.
0: Yeah,
1: it is. And, and you know, we had been lucky enough to be nominated a few times before then, even for Toy Story, for Best Screenplay, and I don't remember what else, but we'd all lost. So I was used to going and being really nervous and then being disappointed <laughs> at the end of the night. And I was kind of right. anticipating that again. Um, but. The fact that we were nominated for a best picture made me have some amount of hope. And mm-hmm. it was a little bit like, I mean, you realize when you, my perception anyway, is the Oscars are for, they're built around famous people, <laughs> actors, celebrities, and the rest mm-hmm. of us get to kind of uh, be there because, <laughs> you know, we're like at the kid's table or something. And uh, um, it was, so you, you, mostly you go in and you're just kind of watching and looking around at, at all the the famous folks and and uh <laughs> feeling the the Hollywood history there and everything. Um it was it's it's it is pretty cool. Yeah. Well
2: um there I'm only going to bother you about one other film before Soul. And that, of course, is the one that you got your other Oscar for, which was Inside Out a few years after that. 2015 comes out third film for Pixar as director. And again, um, a a script that you were a writer of. And um, and this time, I I think, again, it seems like in most cases, the inspiration is going to for, for these stories comes from somewhere pretty personal. Right. And that was the case with
1: Inside Out as well? Yeah, on Up. I remember um, being really frustrated by the fact that so much of what we were doing felt so realistic. And I'm always interested in pushing the boundaries. And you can see it in Up. He's this square-headed, very cartoon caricatured kind of guy. And um, we had struggled through that. Even, Even that amount of caricature felt like I was really having to push. So coming out of up i was trying to think of something that would demand that it be allow us to do something that's not photorealistic and so when i i remember going on a walk and thinking okay what what subject matter insects we've done animals uh, emotions wow okay wait a minute that seems like kind of intriguing cuz what would that look like what would an emotion look like i could see it acting really cool like a, a, a that would be animation friendly and i remember My son was really big into Louis Black at the time, and so thinking, if he had Lewis Black as anger, wow, that would be amazing. Um, (laughs) I didn't really know much more than that about emotions. Of course, later did a ton of research. Um, But the other thing that was going on at the time was my daughter, who actually was the voice of young Ellie in Up, that character Mm -hmm. at the beginning, Mm -hmm. and she was kind of a lot like that character. She's totally goofy and bouncy and, and full of life. Um, About that time, we were getting a lot of reports from her teachers like, oh, Ellie's a quiet child. And we're like, what? Who are you talking about? (laughs) There was a change happening that I remember going through myself uh, that happens when you sort of become socially aware and uh, I have to fit in here. And that's a difficult time. I was talking to Ronnie Del Carmen, who, of course... Uh, I'd worked with on Up and he said, oh yeah, that happened to my daughter. Hold on, it gets worse. And so <laughs> we started comparing notes about what it is to grow up and we thought, well, I wonder if there's an explanation here by using the emotions to talk about what happens to childhood joy, what happens to that that joy and that innocence. Um, as we get older. And so we started exploring that. And of course, um, we got to meet and talk with a lot of amazing um, research scientists, among them, Dr. Paul Ekman, um, who is a leading scientist in the field, as well as Dacher Keltner, who I'm still in contact with, um, even as we have been working on a couple of things. He, he helped us out on soul as well. So just learning about emotions, the fact that they're not just uh, mistakes that we need to get past, you know, I, I had also thought like, well, anger is something that could get you in trouble, like road rage and stuff. So you, you got to learn to control your anger. Well, when you hear about it, like anger serves a very productive uh, function for us as human beings. Uh, it helps keep us safe and, and a sense of justice. So each of the emotions have these jobs that really inf- informed us uh, for the writing uh, of the characters um, as well as just hints at what they might look like and so on. So it was, you know, the research was really key on that one.
2: Well, and I, I think that it from, from different accounts I'd read, you'd sort of come to a couple of revelations that were probably valuable beyond the film. I mean, it's there, in terms of both joy and sadness, somebody was saying, like, Pete, you are you are the model of joy, right? That that was part of the the thought process. And then for sadness, that is, you know, that is a key to the story, right? That, that we should not shy away from it, that that's got to be embraced as well.
1: Yeah. Once we learned that sadness is a response to loss and, you know, um, actually, Dacher Keltner, one of the a research scientist that we talked with, who was a big, it's almost like he uh, was a champion for sadness. And he was like, oh, people want to medicate it away. They don't want to feel it, but it's actually a necessary part. When something happens and you lose someone that's close to you, you you can't just go back to life as normal. And so sadness is a really strong thing for you, a signal that you need to slow down, reassess what your life is going to be now. It's also a signal to other people. Um, if you pass by somebody in the grocery store who's crying, it's almost impossible not to stop and say, are you okay? You know, it's um, a really strong social signal. And so using those things, we are like, okay, this could be really powerful for what we're talking about here.
2: So with Inside Out, I think it may be an example of a of a situation where you guys... Sometimes as probably any writers do, you can paint yourself into a bit of a corner and then it forces you to get really creative about how to get out of it and I think the story of of basically getting joy out of the pit sounds like it's an example a really good oh, yeah. example of that just so just so that people can see how you how you approach the storytelling um, I wonder if you can share that one.
1: Well let's see. Um, one of the things we'd like to explore pretty early in development is what's the worst thing that could happen to a character? What's, you know, and for Joy, who is kind of a proxy for us as as parents, you know, she loves her kid. She wants her kid to be happy and have a wonderful life. So to be away from her kid is probably the worst. Not, uh, oh, and then add to that this idea that she's around all these fading memories of her kid that are disappearing. So that was something that Ronnie... Del Carmen hit on pretty early on was this idea of joy being stuck in this memory pit, this dump where memories go to fade. And uh, we thought, yeah, that's, that's great. So now um, we work the story to get her there. Um, She realizes at the same time, uh, of course, you were looking to make it as bad for your character as you can, that she is not uh, valued as much anymore and that she herself is probably going to be forgotten. So we get her to this place. And now we're thinking, okay, she has to have her epiphany and learn that, okay, these other emotions are important as well. How does she get out? We had early versions where she was stuck there with fear. We had another version she was stuck there with sadness. I think by now we had developed it. Oh, she had made friends with Bing Bong, who's kind of a... uh, He's a friendly guy, but he's, he's more of an echo of the wrong solution he's holding on to childhood and joy needs to let go of that so we had early versions where the two of them i think what we had was like obviously okay for people who've maybe forgotten about the film the idea is that bing bong has this rocket um which is um a wagon that has some stuff painted on it and it's part of riley's imagination because he's an imaginary friend um it's powered by song. So when you sing, you know, the rocket fuel jets out. So they have to sing louder, sing louder, sing louder. So we had a whole thing where the two of them sing at the tops of their their voice and they make it out. There was something that felt sort of, well, triumphant, but I don't know, not, not a hundred percent to me. And I I remember again, I was walking into work and I just had this flash of uh, an idea of like, and and I was really, my heart starts racing and I'm like, I know it has to happen. Bing Bong has to die. And we had developed him to a point where everyone really loved this character. <laughs> right, uh, right. He represents childhood. He's totally endearing. And yet something about that idea that it's only thanks to his sacrifice when he jumps off the wagon that Joy is able to go on and become part of who Riley is in her adulthood. So that felt like symbolically true. It felt emotional. That's why I was really excited um, uh, about it. And I remember coming in to pitch it to people and, and the story artist was like, you are cruel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, it I think it works. Well, And and
2: in many of the greatest animated films, I mean, it's easy to forget, but there's some sad, dark moments, right? I mean, there's a lot of death in, in animated films, but (laughs) so that, that leads us to, you know, leads you to Oscar number two. And at that point, what you have described as sort of a weird feeling that may have in some ways led to soul. Why, what was it about that
1: moment when you would think you're on top of the world that was not that? I think because I had loved animation for so long, in the back of my head, I had this idea that somehow that would be the answer to any unhappiness or unsettledness in my life um, that once I had found real true success and you know it's I guess it's a symptom of everybody probably goes through this like okay i I, I had some I, I you wouldn't sneeze at success from Monsters Inc and up and stuff, but there was something that felt pretty amazing about inside out, you know, to the, again, we won Oscar. It did really well at the box office. People were telling us how it changed their reactions and interaction with their own kids and research scientists were talking or therapists, you know, mm-hmm. so it was like, I don't know that I'm ever going to do something that has this effect on the world again. Why is it that I am still the same guy? Why didn't it change who I am? I still wake up feeling like I don't belong here that I'm insecure uh that I have all these other issues it didn't fix any of that so it just got me thinking about um what am I doing with the time that I have what am I what am I waking up for in the morning you know what is this really a, a worthwhile pursuit this making cartoons you know should I be doing something different more important maybe with my life And it started a whole investigation into, kind of as pompous and absurd as this sounds, the meaning of life, you know? What is it that we're doing? And are we born with some sense of purpose? I think a lot of us in the arts have this almost, uh, I don't even know what the word is, uh, an inborn sense that, that I need to be doing this art form you know um, and maybe people in other uh, sports and things probably have that as well so uh, you know i i i i took some philosophy classes back in high school and college and so this was a chance to you know go back into the uh aristotle and plato and nihilism with nietzsche and all these kind of ideas that are uh toyed have been toyed with for centuries just unpacking what is it that we're doing with our lives is there any resistance, though, when you go to your colleagues at that point
2: and say, I, I guess, look, my idea is to do a film that for Pixar, which is not... I know you don't make films exclusively for children, but that's going to be a big part of your audience, where it's going to have a middle-aged protagonist. It's going to have a uh, a lot to talk about, essentially about death and the afterlife. I mean, I could see how some people on paper or on you know, hearing the idea might
1: react a little bit uh, uh, resistant to that for a Pixar film. Well, the way I sold it was, I want to talk about where did we come from? And I don't mean the man and woman get together kind of thing. Yeah, we know yeah. that. Where is it? How is it that our kids, and I think most of us that are parents recognize that our kids, when I look backwards, from the moment they were born, they have a specific... And individual personality. Where did that come from? So that, uh, I remember pitching that to John Lasseter and his eyes kind of lighting up and going like, yeah, ex- that seems interesting. I think, he, you know, it was, uh, it was not something I had done intentionally, but with Monsters and with Inside Out, they were um, looking into things that we've all dealt with in our own lives and maybe even thought about, like what if there really are monsters that hide in my closet, um, and exploring those. And And there's the cool thing about the way that turned out is it has a, an immediate uh, tap into our own lives, and yet it's also fantasy at the same time. So um, it allows us to play around and have a good time, but it also allows us to speak directly to our own experiences as as humans. And I think he saw that in this concept of exploring a world where souls are kind of trained for their lives on Earth. And the first version of that had less to do with it had no nothing to do with earth. It was all set in the the great before we started to call it. And uh I think we thought just logically, well, what if there's a soul who's been up here for decades, doesn't want to go to Earth. She looks down, she, he or she looks down and goes, eh, pass. You know, it looks like <laughs> a lot of a lot of suffering and disappointment. I, I'll stay here, thank you. And then we were like, well there should probably be somebody who is all gung ho about life maybe has lived already just to contrast that and so we had these two characters one of whom as the story developed he'd had amnesia he had he knew he was in the wrong place somehow he'd already lived but he couldn't remember and so as we developed this the story and and it became more clear that hey we're talking about the joys and benefits of life of the everyday life It's going to be really hard to dramatize that if we just talk about it or we have the characters watching little movies about it. They need to be down there doing it. They need to interact with it. So that's then, of course, what got us the next step of making Joe an actual human with a pursuit and a goal to get back there.
2: Now, why is Joe... Joe is, let's just say, first of all, the first uh, Pixar black protagonist of of a Pixar film. Yeah. was th- was that because you guys came to the realization that we haven't done this yet and this is something that obviously we should address or was it more
1: organic to the story well embarrassingly enough it was not the former it was it was it was uh, for better or worse it was the second that we said okay if joe is going to be in pursuit of some noble artistic thing that he believes is his purpose in life um uh, what what would that be? And, you know, for a little while we thought about animation because that is, uh, reflects my experience. Um, <laughs> but to make it a little bit more uh, enjoyable for a mass audience, we eventually settled on musician. And there was something about like a jazz musician that feels very genuine. Like you don't go into that to become rich and famous. You do it because you love it. You have a passion for it. And we can root for that. And I think from the beginning, my the excitement of the film was I wanted to undo what I suspect people think we're going to do. And that is, hey, if we show this person struggling and clawing his way to finally make it, we're going to end the movie with his success. My thought was, no, that's going to be the end of act two. We're going to then now talk about what happens after that, reflecting Mm -hmm. my own experience with Inside Out. And um, so as a musician, that just felt really cool because it's going to be fun to watch him play. When you see people play, it's like magic, you know, watching them Uh, do what they do, musicians. Um, And jazz felt really appropriate um, thematically as well, uh, as a metaphor. You know, when you think about jazz, you don't really choose the tune, but you make it into something beautiful and personal. And so the very essence of what that musical form is, felt like it reflected our own lives. We don't get to choose where we're born or who our parents are or what happens to us during the day, but we can dictate how we react to it and hopefully turn it into something that is uh, of value. And that was all reflected in jazz. And of course, then we said, well, if jazz, one of our consultants said, it's it could more accurately be termed black improvisational music. And we're like, yeah, well, that, makes sense. Uh, Our main character should really be African-American to reflect the heritage of the music. And um, to do that, we're going to need a lot of help because, you know, um, as I mentioned, most of the people who started at Pixar, we all kind of came from white suburban towns and, and culture. So by now, by this point in Pixar, we have some amount of diversity. This is, you know, as we started in 2015 or so. But we need more and we need a lot of uh, uh, and a, uh, in the same way we talked about research in any of our films we want to make sure that joe is authentic and believable even though i might not know a jazz musician i can i can feel whether that's truthful or not you know so um kemp powers who ended up as co-director we hired him on originally as just as the writer as a writer um But he ended up being so integral to the character, to the development of the sets and the the costuming and everything that that we're like, yeah, he he should be co-director.
2: In the middle of this huge undertaking, you have something unexpected happen. And I say you, and it's really everyone at Pixar, which was the departure of John Lassar, which is something that a world that you had... Never known, right? You all these yeah. years at Pixar, he'd been there, and with that, I guess comes the then the call from Bob Iger to replace or to succeed John Lasseter. And so I wonder just if you can take me into your your mindset as that is being as all that's unfolding while you're still trying to get to the finish line on a film that you're directing. I I would think it's a probably a lot to be dealing with.
1: Yes yes to say the <laughs> least uh it was not something that i ever wanted i i am as i mentioned i you know crawl under my desk at the end of the day i i like the craft of making stuff um so even directing felt like a stretch much much less um you know being the creative head of the place there are so many conflicting and unsettling emotions that are wrapped up in you know, uh, long years of friendship and working together and, you know, what's going on in the world. And, and um, so when Bob Iger calls me into his office and says, hey, we want you to step into this position, um, it was not a feeling of elation. It was like, to some degree, amount, uh, uh, even amount of uh, some amount of dread. Um, and I had to really think about, like, do I want to do this? Is this, do I feel like this is something... Am I additive? Am I actually going to be helpful to the studio? Um, And I guess in the end, I felt like without making patting myself on the back too hard that I felt like I had something to bring given the experience that I have and my temperament. And uh, um, so I said, yes. And uh, it was very difficult to try to navigate what that whole job means. At the same time, I was finishing a film at the same time, I kind of look at it as uh, maybe the best way to do it because then I at least had the comfort of the film and the chaos of that to be able to fall back on when, when things were blowing up at the studio, I'd be like, uh, see you guys, I'm going back to the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Not really, but I mean, at least I had that comfort of like, okay, I know what this craziness is. I know what the movie making, and I I find a great joy in that. Um, so I can kind of leverage some of that energy as I pour it back into the, uh, the creative supervising role thing. So. And then on top of all of that, you
2: get like the rest of us, of course, hit with this pandemic right before your film is about to come out while you're getting used to running the place. And I guess I just wonder how have you handled this past year? And and was it was it a a blow to have your film go directly to Disney Plus? Or is that the future? Is that, you know, in the way that Toy Story was the beginning of something? Is this just maybe the the beginning of you can can you frame it in that way in your mind?
1: Yeah, I think, we, uh, I'd be lying if I wouldn't if I didn't admit to uh, a great disappointment when when finally they dis- decided you know we're going to put this out on Disney Plus exclusively. Now I totally understand the business reasons for that. You know you're trying to attract an audience. You want to prove to people you're going to get quality stuff. But this is the first of our twenty three features to not have a theatrical release, and that felt like a real bummer. I now kind of feel like. Oh, well, that's an old man talking. As the younger generation um, experiences all this stuff, um, I'm not sure that it's as important to them that it come out theatrically. Now, I'm generalizing. I'm sure there are a lot of people who are like, no, wait, I love theaters, I love movies, (laughs) and I'm happy for that. But I do think there is going to be a shift. It's already happened and is continuing to happen that... um, some amount of the really quality stuff that we all grew up loving um, is going to be not theatrically released for for the for pure business reasons, you know. Uh, it's kind of striking. I went back and watched. I love this movie, uh, The Station Agent, directed by Tom yeah. McCarthy. Yeah. And uh, it still holds up. It's a wonderful film. But one of the most striking things about it was when it came out. That was a theatrical film. It's a film about three people. that live like in an old abandoned train that would never have, like there's no (laughs) No. explosions, no no flying or superheroes or robots. So it's just, you can, you can tell like the world's shifted. It needs to be a huge, big blockbuster to be able to be out in the theaters. I feel like our films have this, they're kind of like Trojan horses in a way. Cause on the outside, I think on the outside, our films look, like big showboat. There's a lot of flashy explosions and the crowd pleasing. Um, so they, I think, still fit into that, you know, what we were talking about of like the, the Lucasfilm and Marvel type of films. It's, it's, it feels like a big film. But on the inside, we look at them as like these little uh, personal nuggets. They're like indie films in there. So it's still like a little piece of the old style cinema uh, that's, that's, that we're hopefully keeping alive.
2: Absolutely. Well, with our last minute, I hope we can just do kind of what we call a rapid fire, just the first thing that comes to your mind uh Okay. How much how much <laughs> I haven't studied. <laughs> Nothing too scary, I promise. Okay. Um, okay. So, how much actual animating do you get to do these days whether it's for personal reasons or work? Like, do you is it still something you get to do?
1: barely any. I do a little bit, because um, we've done, instead of uh, Christmas cards, they have done these flip books for like 20, 23 years, something like that. Oh, so wow. I still do those every Christmas and that's always a pain. And then by the end, I'm like, hey, this is fun. And then it's done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, now that you're the chief creative officer, will you still be able to direct again?
1: I think it's possible. Um, I'm not slamming the door on it. I think for now I'm going to be there's plenty to do in the chief creative officer role. So in the next few months anyway, that's where my focus is. What's the deal with John Ratzenberger
2: being the Pixar good luck charm? I know that it's now been a part of every Pixar movie, including Soul, but in Soul, I guess for the first time, not vocally, just as, a, as an
1: image, but what, how, how did that happen? You know what happened was after Toy Story came out, we had this, we had the wrap party in the screening and everybody's like, Hey, goodbye. All the stars left except for last, uh, John, uh, Rassenberger. And he hung around with us and he was just such a cool guy. And, and we're like, you know what? He would be good for this new part in, in a bug's life as P.T. Flea. And then, uh, of course the next one we did was Toy Story 2. And then after that, um, oh, this, I hope he won't mind me saying this the Yeti, the Abominable Snowman, the original casting was um, Richard Kind. And oh. he sounded so similar to Billy Crystal that we're like, oh, this just isn't working. Well, well, let's get John Ratzenberger. So by now then, of course, we had a, a pattern and and he kept showing up. And then by now, we get to Soul, 23 films in. Is that our 23rd? I don't remember now. Anyway, I think so. a lot of films in. I was trying to think of ways to shake it up because I think Certain amount of people are like, "Where's John Ratzenberger?" And yeah, I'm yeah. Thinking, all right, let's <laughs> let's try to fool with him a little bit. All right, and right. Uh, so he he shows up visually, but you don't hear his voice in this one. All right.
2: Um, what's next for Pixar? I was kind of surprised to hear you say that you feel you guys are not doing enough sequels.
1: I feel like you want to have, and this is, uh, you want to, in terms of what the audience wants to see, and everybody, of course, is coming at this from their own perspective. Some people would love to see no sequels at all. Um, and you get a lot of grouchy comments about, oh, great, another sequel. But if you look at the actions of people, they speak loudly that people love sequels. So right. I think you want to kind of find a balance there of some amount of characters that people know and love and want to see again, um, balanced with characters they've never met and, and are going to meet for the first time. So that's, that's kind of where we are now. And, and, you know, I, the, the other thing that's of course happened in the past year is with the pandemic, Disney plus has asked us to step up and do more work. Um, so we have a bunch of original stuff there as well as some, uh, projects that are derived from some of the films and, uh, that's pretty exciting, too. So we have this amazing lineup, more work than we've ever done in the history of the studio, and a great deal of new and diverse directors. Um, so new voices. Um, this wasn't the plan, of course, but between John leaving and Andrew has been taking on a lot of uh, projects in live action streaming and Lee Unkrich stepped down. So we have a big, um, a big group of new directors and new voices, which is really, really cool.
2: Absolutely. Well, final one of these is what's your personal outlook for the future? Let's say you, which is very, very possibly the case, you may end up with Oscar number three here for this film. And I wonder, you know, how do you, do do you think you will be able to come away from this feeling perhaps a little better than you did after Oscar number two? Have have things, has your perspective
1: shifted a bit? Well, I know that My own personal happiness is not contingent on the Oscar (laughs) (laughs) or anything else, the success of the film. That part is up to me to figure out, uh, irregardless of of however you want to define success. You know, happiness is not uh, achieved by actions, you know, um, or at least those kind of actions (laughs) to qualify. So, yeah, I mean, I, I... I would love to say by making the film that I've become a whole and complete person and (laughs) I'm all worked out. But, you know, the truth is I still have all the insecurities and fears that everybody else has. And I think that's part of life. It's just yeah, I kind of have to accept that. uh, Yeah. When you're born, you're going to have to deal with disappointment. And uh, and all that said, I have an amazing life and uh, I couldn't ask for more. Well, I can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time and memories with
2: this. It's really been special. So thank you very, very much. Thanks for that. You guys do your research.
1: That was very fun. Thank Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate
2: you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Feinberg. and you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.
0: With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.